the 1400s and 1500s, a couple hundred years ago, that's the age that we know of as the age of discovery, where our, our Western countries, European countries, were exploring the earth and discovering all these things that they didn't know existed. Of course, we know that's a little bit of a misnomer because they were discovering things and places where people already lived. There were already people there uh, and had already been discovered by, by other people. Uh, in this time, though, part of the, uh, part of the discovery fervor was fueled uh, by Christopher Columbus and, and the, the research he did and, and his mapping of the, the coast of the New World. Uh, was used in the making of a specific map, and this was done in the year 1513. Uh, It's the map called the Piri Race Map, and it was composed using part of of Columbus's research and mapping, but also uh, there's an interesting addition to this. Uh, This included the mapping of the continent of Antarctica. Christopher Columbus had not been there, and no one in the known world had been there or known about it, even going back thousands of years to the Romans and the Greeks and the ancient Egyptians, there was nothing in known human knowledge about Antarctica at that time. Further, the map of Antarctica also indicates that Antarctica was vegetated at the time that it was mapped. So the theory is that there was a race of people, seafaring people, that predated even ancient Egyptians that sailed across oceans, mapped out the continents. If that's true, I think it's interesting, and I think it may fit in in this time period we're looking at. Right after the flood, the generations spreading around the earth before the Ice ages happened and the rapid climate changes and before Antarctica was covered with miles of ice. It's interesting to think about, um, but there's kind of a dark side to this. If that is true, if there was a race of people that sailed the world and mapped out the continents even before ancient Egypt, they had to have uh, the technology to build the boats to do that, and then that knowledge was lost for thousands of years. Not sure exactly what happened there or why it was lost, if it was just, it just happened to not be passed on. But that's something that we as humans are capable of, of forgetting things, of losing information. Uh, a darker side to that even more is the fact that we as humans have the ability to intentionally forget things, to be willingly ignorant of things that are true. We're going to look at the people right after the flood and the danger of, of that. Join with me, uh, and we'll, we'll pray together about this text this morning. God, we, we pray that as we look to your word that you would reveal truth to us, that you would help us to not be willingly ignorant of what your word says about, about the world we live in and about who we are this morning. God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This idea of being willingly ignorant is one of the the many things that we should be aware of when people band together. One of the dangers of what we can do together. We often hear about that positively, what we can do together. But there is a danger of what we can do together as well. Read with me in chapter 11 of Genesis, starting in verse 1. We'll read the first six verses. 
Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have, ha- they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. There are a few things going on in these verses, uh, but one of the things that we, we see here, one of the dangers of what man can do together is that they can suppress truth. We are in the timeline, we are within the lifetime of Noah. We see chronologies, we see uh, genealogies here in the rest of the chapter that describe the specific generations following Noah. I'm just going to make a note. I believe these are literal, accurate translation or literal, accurate genealogies and and timelines given here. There's debate about that, especially in the genealogies in chapter 5 where there are large times pictured there. This person had lived for this many hundred years and then had this child. And this, the argument that's made is that, that that may not be an immediate generation as opposed to this guy being the father and this guy being the son. Maybe this guy is the great-great-grandfather of this son, and there are generations in between. And that may be, but we're still given specific dates. If this guy is not this guy's father, whenever this guy was born was still a specific number of years after this guy was born. And I think that's supposed to give us a specific and accurate chronology. And when we look at the genealogy in chapter 11 here, we see that uh, within a couple generations, we get to a man named Peleg. It says in chapter 10, verse, I'm sorry, that goes back in chapter 10. Sorry, we're going back to chapter 10, verse 25. His name was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And we see that that is within five generations of Noah. And actually, if you do the math, following the, the, the numbers in chapter 11, it's about 100 years. Peleg was born about 100 years after the flood. And we're told that Noah lived 350 years after the flood. Noah is still alive when the people settle in the plains of Shinar. We're also told in chapter 10 uh, that Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man, He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10 says the beginning of his kingdom was at Babel. He is three generations from Noah. And he starts this kingdom in Babel. And then once the the nations are dispersed, he spreads out and has other kingdoms. Uh, But this is within the lifetime of Noah. We don't know exactly what happened to Noah. If he he and his sons are... Are, uh, just have lost influence to be able to, to speak truth to the people that are here, to, to give firsthand account of God's judgment for rebellion, or if they're going along with it, we, we, we don't know. But all of the people are now moving together, and, and they make this statement that they are going to settle as opposed to fill the earth, something that is a, a direct rebellion against God's design for man. We hear about this in Romans chapter 1. We hear of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. These men 
are willingly ignorant of the judgment that happened just 100 years ago on sin. So there is the danger of suppressing truth, and that is easier to do in a group that is doing that. It's easy to, to hear a, same fal- a false narrative and pass it on. It's he- easy to hear a lie being told and, and perpetuate that lie and hide the things that are true. And that's what happens in our world. That's what happens even in Christian lives where we suppress truth sometimes because we hear a false narrative that sounds better. Another danger here is that man gives full expression to his sinful heart. Now, this is similar to what happened before the flood. Before the flood, we're told that everyone was wicked. And this is, again, well on its way to being that. God had pushed the reset button with the flood and cleaned the whole earth, but man is back to his same schemes, pursuing evil and rebelling against God. They do not want to fill the earth. So what do they do instead? They say, let's build a city. As opposed to spreading out, they're going to gather together and live in the same place, build a city. Now, cities have kind of a negative connotation in Scripture, not inherently evil, but they do have a negative connotation. This is not the first city. The first city happens in chapter 4. It's built by Cain. So even within generations of creation, there are enough people that Cain builds a city, probably not chicago size, probably not even Mount pleasant size, uh, but he builds a city where people gather together uh, to defend themselves and support each other. Uh, the next city we hear about, Babel, the next one after that is Sodom. Again, not a great connotation. Uh, and then the stories go on of, of cities. Uh, there are good cities, but Babylon, named after Babel, becomes the, the, the picture of man's total rebellion against God. It's a city, a city of rebellion. Now again, it's not inherently evil. There's, there are common goods that, that cities bring us, people working together, uh, getting along together. There are, are better things that happen when, when people get together. And those are common graces that God gives us. But like all common graces, those can be means of rebellion. Or those can be idols themselves. And so these people are specifically choosing to live in a city because they do not want to trust God, because they do not want to obey God. And, and maybe our cities are, are full of some of those people, full of people who are also just living in a city because it's a common grace. But because they do not want to fill the earth, they build a city. Because they don't want to fill the earth, maybe they also, maybe that's partly why they are building a tower. I'm not sure this is exactly what they're thinking. Uh, but if they did know about the flood, it could be, that they're trying to build a, fl- a tower that's tall enough to help them survive the flood. Don't know exactly. Um, so if that's true, even while they're suppressing the truth that they should be obeying God, they're trying to, in the back of their minds, they're still trying to avoid judgment for what they know is wrong. They're also suppressing the truth that God promised to never do that again. He wasn't going to flood the earth again. Another part here of their uh, full expression of their sinful hearts is what they say. They say, let us make a name for themselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. That is the, the motive behind this tower. They want it to reach to the heavens. They want it to connect heaven and earth. The desire to still be in heaven is there from, from Eden, from creation. 
they, it, man wants to be in earth ever since he's been kicked out, or in heaven, sorry, since he's been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Now, there are different ideas about where this happens specifically. Uh, in the plain of Shinar, what we call the Fertile Crescent, modern-day Iraq and the Euphrates and Tigris River valleys there, there are several different potential places where Babel could have happened. There are lots of these ziggurats, like this example, uh, towers that were built. There are several of these scattered over that area, and they've survived for thousands of years. But these were temples of worship, temples that tried to reach to the heavens uh, in worship of a pagan deity, or more often, the men themselves. This one is a, is a sketch of a particular temple that, that is in the town of Babylon, again named after Babel, and there's debate over which one was the exact location. But this particular temple is called Etemenaki, and it is called that, uh, translated, the temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. Man's attempt to bridge the gap between heaven and earth again. But these people are building this not because they desire to seek after God and return to his presence. They want to get to heaven but without God. They're saying, let us do this. They want to do it without God helping them. Let us reach the heavens. Let us build this tower in this city and make the bricks. They're saying, let us repeatedly. And to make a name for themselves, their only thought once they get to heaven is that they will be the ones that are worshipped. So they want to get back to heaven, but they want to replace God in doing it. Again, the repeat of the, the temptation in the garden, the, the foundation of our sin. Another danger of us getting together is that individual sins become unified sins. God looks at them banding together in sin and he says, nothing will now be impossible for them. I don't think this is supposed to mean that man can do anything. They could do anything that God could do and they could overthrow God and become gods and reach heaven. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's speaking in earthly terms. This is not God feeling a sense of rivalry, but this is a, a fatherly creator concern Man is not doing what he was created to do, again. He understands human potential. Human potential is great. He created men to do great things. As I mentioned, Cain, even within generations of creation, is building cities. The rest of that genealogy in chapter 5 tells us about men who developed music and artistic endeavors and developed metallurgy within generations of them even being in existence. Man has great potential, but when that is corrupted, there is great, great potential for evil. And that is only hinted at here, but there is great potential for evil, that if man were to stay unified in sin, it would be a perpetual cycle of sin and apostasy, false worship. It would be something that would be oppressive. Probably slavery would be uh, the norm and, and just human suffering would be great. Again, it's only hinted at here, but the danger is, is clear that, that God does not want that to happen. And maybe that's exactly what was happening before the flood, and that's why he brought that type of judgment on the earth. Now, when we think about this, the, the potential, uh, human potential being corrupted into one organized system on the earth, we normally get the phrase one world government, and we normally start thinking about the Antichrist. And that is true. That is what we are told will come. And there are things that are happening in our world today. There are things that 
you may be wary of because of the desire for, for it to be a, a global uh, organization of nations like the United Nations or a, a global marketplace or things like that. And uh, the danger with that is not that we may accidentally bring about the Antichrist too soon. <laughs> We're not trying to avoid those things because that's going to bring the Antichrist. So that's what the Antichrist is going to do. We're, we want to avoid those things because God is saying right here, those things are inherently not good, regardless of the Antichrist. For there to be unified sin under one head, one government, no opportunity for, for distinction and dissent and, and things like that, God is saying that is inherently not good. And when the Antichrist comes, he will fully manifest that evil, and that's why it is called the great tribulation. It will be as bad as God is suggesting here. And the Antichrist will have his capital city as Babylon, the, the, the center, the, the, the indicator of all of human sin. So this is the danger. God looks at the people at Babel, and he says there is something not good here. So what does he do about it? God acts. We look at verse 7 through 9 here. God says to himself, he says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So we see here the effect of God acting is the the birth of nations and languages and and a few other things that we'll look at here. But God acts partly in judgment, but also partly for their good. This is part of his good design. God says, let us, if you remember the earlier verses, the, the men were saying, the children of men were saying, let us do this, let us do that. And then God says, no, let us. And then what else does he say? He says, let us come down. What are they building? They're building a tower, right, to reach to the heavens. What does God have to do? Anthropomorphically, he comes down to this tiny little endeavor of humans to build a temple, a tower, to reach the heavens. He has to come down to see it. I think God is making a joke there. But he acts in judgment, when we read from Romans chapter 1 about the unrighteous who suppress the truth, we're told the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against that type of ungodliness. God acts in judgment. So God is not letting corruption rise to the level it did before the flood. And he's helping them actually return to his original intent. He's forcing them to do what he created them to do, which is to go and fill the earth. This will not be like what he originally commanded Adam and Eve to do, to fill the earth and subdue it, but it will be to spread out and accomplish some things anyway. This is a picture of of life being different. Now, we've gone through our series of Genesis here shortly at the beginning, been looking at specific things that shape the way our world is today, how God created life and how God has designed and brought about the life that we now live. And a lot of these things are foundational, and they happened right at the beginning of the story. Of course, these first couple of chapters of Genesis represent a couple thousand years, 
but they shape things very early in human history. I know a lot of you kids have been going through in Sunday school what are called the seven seas of history. And there are four of those that match exactly what we've been talking about. Can you guys help me with those four? Maybe it's just my kids, maybe a few others here. What's the first one? Creation. The second one is corruption, the fall. The third one is catastrophe, the flood. And the fourth one, confusion. We find ourselves here this morning. Those four things match the four sermons we preached in this series. Because the confusion that comes about from the birth of these nations and languages has really shaped the world that we live in. We don't really know any different. The world we live in is shaped by this sin of Babel. So we have now the birth of nations and languages. Later on in Acts 17, Paul makes this profound statement about racial unity. We want to talk about race these days, right? Hear what Paul says. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. We don't have races. The people that we see came from one man, from Adam, and then from Noah's family. But they are now dispersed. And the the language division caused the dispersion. The result is that we now have anywhere from 6,500 to 7,100 languages in the world. We have... 195 recognized sovereign nations in our world. That's according to the UN, which is agreed, not the arbiter of nationhood in God's eyes. But those 195 sovereign nations represent 17,000 people groups. 17,000 different people groups. We have all the genetic and ethnic differences that we see in our world today. And those were all bound up creatively in Adam and Eve. And as mankind spread out because of the language division, their isolation allowed the the genetic pools to to be isolated and produce a ton of variety that we now see, the full spectrum of God's creativity on display in humankind, different colors of hair and skin and different shapes of facial features and, and all of these things that God designed from the beginning and now we get to see all the cultural differences that now come about Again, this is part of God's good design, and this is a part of the pattern, if you remember, from creation. God is separating things, not because either one is bad, but he's making distinctions. He's saying, this is a people group, this is a people group now, and he is causing these separations. Unfortunately, that also brings with it some negative things. There are now miscommunication. Sorry, there's a typo there that says communication, but now there's miscommunication, now there's conflict, and now there's what we know of as racism. First of all, miscommunication. We read in verse 11, God says, let us go down there, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. What happens in your home when you don't understand maybe your spouse, what they're saying? What happens when your children don't understand what you say or what you expect of them when there's a misunderstanding? Or maybe when you don't understand what your children think or Uh, what's going on in their life. Miscommunication breeds conflict. Now, I'm not trying to say that miscommunication here or lack of understanding is an original sin. 
There was conflict. There was ambition, selfish ambition and pride before Babel. But miscommunication makes everything worse, right? Have you ever felt that? Miscommunication makes everything worse. And that is why we as believers are so clearly commanded to communicate well, to speak the truth in love, to uh, not lie but to speak the truth, to, to not let corrupt talk enter into our conversation. We're commanded very clearly how to speak, to communicate with each other. We're commanded to live in understanding with each other, especially husbands with wives, so that it does not breed more conflict. And we're told to talk and communicate and relate with people who talk differently than we do, who think differently than we do, who look differently than we do. Because out of this division, not just the languages, but the people groups and the different looks and lifestyles of people creates what we know as racism. It is something that is in our world today and it's being talked about in our world today and it starts here because people look and act and live differently. Now, I want to be clear when I say racism, I don't mean everything that happens between people of different ethnicities that someone doesn't like. Racism is a specific type of sin where we look at someone and just because of the way that we look, we assume they're inferiority or their moral guilt of something. That is racism. It's a type of prejudice that has caused a lot of damage. Now again, it is not the original sin either, but it is something that is coming out of this terrible act of rebellion. Now, these things happen. These are negative side effects of, of the good things that we looked at, the nations and the, and the languages and you might wonder, why, why is God doing that? If God is acting in judgment, why is the judgment something that just creates more problems? It creates more sin. Is this something where, where the, the punishment is worse than the crime or the, the cure is worse than the disease? I don't think so. I think this is meant to tell us exactly how bad the one world unified sin is that God was wanting to avoid. This is the lesser of two evils. As one of my commentators said, better division than collective apostasy. Unified sin would have been far worse, far worse than racism, far worse than the conflict that affects all of our human relationships, far worse than war. Robert E. Lee is quoted as saying, it is great that war is so terrible lest we become too fond of it. War is a terrible thing, and many wars have come because of these divisions of people groups and misunderstandings of each other. But that is not the worst thing. This is the lesser of two evils. Even the obstacles to the gospel that this represents. We have language barriers between people groups. We have difficulty in communicating the gospel. When I was in China 15 years ago, it was a really hard thing to try to communicate the gospel to someone whose second language was English, and I was trying to teach them how to speak it. Uh, that was a hard thing, but that obstacle to the gospel and the, the closed countries that we have that are hostile to the gospel are still the lesser of two evils. An article from an author, John Bloom, said, God knows 
what he's doing when he frustrates the plans of man. We may not understand it. It's only hinted, I hear, the real severe danger that God was trying to avoid in bringing about this judgment. But we should trust that God knows what he's doing. And that goes for the big picture. There's these big picture issues that we're talking about, but that goes for the individual lives that we live too and the smaller things where it seems like what God is allowing in our life maybe is not the best. What he's allowing in our life is is the worst of the options from our perspective. Author John Bloom goes on to say, the God who presided over the confusion in Shinar presides over our babble moments, large and small too. And for all of us who love him, he promises to turn them for our ultimate good. The verse we know, Romans 8, 28. As we've looked at these different chapters, I've been really glad to be able to start at the beginning of the story. And I've been really glad to say the past couple times, this is not the end of the story, right? Are you thankful for that as well? The same way it began, and I want to show you this. This is another uh, commentator's way of breaking down these first Pivotal, pivotal moments of human history, creation, then Satan's freedom at the fall, Satan is free in the world now, then worldwide judgment in the flood, then Babel associated with Babylon, same way it begins, it will end, and again, I can't wait to get to the next, the series where we're going to look at the end, but this, we flip this on the reverse, the end of the book of the Revelation, the end of the Bible goes from Babylon to worldwide judgment, not Satan's freedom, thank the Lord, but Satan's confinement, and then new creation. Everything we've looked at is going to be resolved in a perfect, perfect way that only God can ordain. That's yet to come, but we're going to fill in some of the gaps here, because this is not done. God specifically, in the middle there, has a plan for nations and for languages. If you will, go with me to chapter 12, chapter 12. Kevin, and, and we all read this already this morning, but read along again with me. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." What is God's plan for the nation? First of all, his plan is to call out one nation. He calls out Israel. Starts here with Abram, uh, but it will become Israel. Again, this pattern of distinction, he's calling out one nation from the rest. He's separating them and making this distinction. He says he's going to make a name for them. And he changes, actually, Abram's name right after this to Abraham. He changes Abraham's Grandson, Jacob's name to Israel, that becomes the name of the people group. He says he will bless them, he will protect them from those who dishonor them. He says he will give them a land, a beginning of God's pursuit of restoring his relationship with man and being able to dwell with them again. He gives them a land where he will then come to dwell with them again. We mentioned that a couple weeks ago with the tabernacle and the temple where God will attempt to dwell again with his people Israel. And not just them, but the land is uh, for where he will dwell and where the rest of the nations of the earth will see what the God of Israel is like. And that is pictured with people like Jethro, 
who even before they were in the land saw the testimony of God through his people and was a believer. People like Rahab, Rahab, when they entered the land, not a person of Israel, but believed and worshiped the God of Israel. Ruth, even the whole city of Nineveh, maybe two million people, when presented with the, the good news of the God of Israel, repented and worshiped him. It was not just for Israel. They were supposed to be a light to the rest of the nations, but Israel ultimately failed to do that well, these exceptions notwithstanding. They often did not follow their own God and let the nations influence them more into pagan worship. God had made this promise, though, we read it already, that through them, through Abraham's family, through Israel, all the nations would be blessed. And this is not just a a spillover of the material blessings that he would give them or anything like that. This was a specific promise of the Messiah. So the next part of God's plan for the nations is that he would send Jesus for all the nations. That's why we read in Luke chapter 2, Simeon says of Jesus when he sees him, he quotes Isaiah, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. One of our favorite verses, Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder. The nation, the nations will be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Where there is conflict in our world today because people are divided and misunderstand each other, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, will bring peace that will have no end. If you're following Advent at all, the traditional Advent calendar, this Sunday is the Sunday to worship for worship Jesus because he brings peace. This is the Peace Sunday. Last week was hope. This is peace. He brings peace. He brings peace for the nations, but that's not yet. Peace among nations is not happening yet, in case you were thinking that. Um... But he brings peace to individuals now. Jesus has not completed everything that he will come to do, but he offers peace to individuals through the good news of the gospel, the good news of him dying on the cross for our sin, for our rebellion, so that those who put their faith in Jesus uh, could have peace with God. There's no hostility, there's no judgment coming for those who trust in Christ. The next part of God's plan for the nations is to build the church from all nations. Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We see this pictured at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The barriers of language are broken down in the spirit, in the body of Christ. And there is true unity in the body of Christ. We read in Colossians, here, there is not Greek and Jew. That distinction between Jew and Gentile is no more. It is reunited. There is no longer circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. No longer these distinctions of what people group you come from. But Christ is all and is in all. We must live out that unity. We must live with 
good communication, with good understanding, with relationships that do not respect or make distinctions about what people group you come from or what you look like or how you talk. Because there is no distinction in the body of Christ. We must live that out. We must also, therefore, prioritize the unreached people groups, of which there are thousands, thousands of these people groups that have no knowledge of the gospel that we're talking about. There are 2,200 languages where there is no word of God translated. We must prioritize that. Because the last part of God's plan is that he will gather the redeemed from all nations. We read in Revelation chapter 22 of the river of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, remember the tree, Eden, the cross, now the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, fruit again, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The nations will be before the throne of God and the distinctions and the conflict and the wars that have happened between nations and peoples will be healed from the tree of life and the presence of Jesus. Again, the nations will be healed and the nations will be represented there. But the offer is not to nations. This is an individual offer. You don't get in because of what people group you belong to. There is an individual responsibility to respond to the offer of Jesus Christ. And when we are there, he will restore worship from the languages. We saw that preview at Pentecost. We see it further at the throne of Jesus, the throne of God in Revelation chapter 5, where Jesus is said to be worthy to take the scroll, to sit on the throne, because he was slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you may wonder, when they're singing that, what language are they going to be singing? They're coming from all languages, but what language are they going to be singing? Maybe you don't wonder that, but you should ask that question because Zephaniah has an answer for you. Zephaniah chapter 3, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. No longer serving their own ends, building their own tower, they will worship in one restored language. They're from every language, but they will restore with one tongue and worship with one tongue. That's why I love the songs that we got to sing this morning. Christmas is good. Christmas time is great, and the songs are, are great. But we sang this morning already, O come, desire of nations, bind all people in one heart and mind, fill the whole world with heaven's peace. We also sang Israel's strength and consolation, Israel, but also hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. We're going to close here in a moment by singing this, joy to the world, the Lord is come. May he come. Let earth receive her king. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the wonders of his love and righteousness. We get the opportunity to, to praise God now with the language he's given, with the people he's given us in the body of Christ where there is no distinction. Let's praise him for that today.
God, we pray that you would be glorified. We look forward to the glory where nations and languages will be restored and reunited in worship before your throne. God, we pray that as we live out our lives, as we live out the unity of the body of Christ, the love, the understanding, the good communication even between people who are different, that you would be glorified and you'd be glorified as we praise you even the rest of this morning. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.